Folks, I would invite you uh, to turn in your copies of God's Word um, to the book of Romans. We'll be in chapter 8 and chapter 3 and honestly a few other places in the Bible today. Um, Because today we're not considering just one passage of Scripture, we're considering a theme in the Bible. And so... um, In God's providence, I was reminded this morning during uh, our small group time, during Sunday school, how uh, he works in in very uh, good and gracious ways to us. Um, If you were in the small group time during the Sunday school hour today, you have in a way heard this sermon preached already. You have come into worship today prepared to hear this. And so that, that was so good to see just how God, uh, without me planning this out, how he just caused our lesson this morning and now our, our sermon today to just really kind of dovetail together. And so I thank God for that. Um, we are doing a little series during December called The Gospel According to Christmas Carols. Uh, I know that there were many times when I was growing up and even when I was uh, older than I should have been, when I was singing a lot of stuff in church and I didn't really understand everything that I was singing. Um, We just sang one of those songs, O Come Emmanuel. We sing in that very first verse, Ransom Captive Israel. For a long time, I had no idea what that meant. Uh, And it occurs to me that no matter where we are in our growth, whether you have a deep understanding of of Israel and the Old Testament or whether, you know, not so much, it's always good for us during this Advent, Christmas season to look to the Scriptures and remind ourselves of what it is we believe, what it is we are singing. It causes our worship to be deeper when we understand the things that we are singing. But why would we sing this? Why would we sing Ransom Captive Israel? Isn't that Old Testament? I mean, isn't aren't those events long past? Isn't that Old Covenant? And what does the Old Covenant, what does the Old Testament have to do with Jesus? What does the Old Testament have to do with the coming of our Savior? How does it touch down? Before we answer this question, It's good to ask another question. When you think of the love of God, what adjectives to describe God's love come to mind? If you were to try to describe God's love to someone else, how would you do it? What words come to mind when you think of the love of God? Of God. One person has said that the most important thing about us is what comes to mind when we think of God. Whether our view of God is biblical or it's just created a little more from things we pick up in the culture and things we've assumed and what kind of we learn from Netflix. What we think of when we think of God is the most important thing about us. Do you think that God's love is beautiful? Would that be an adjective? that you would use to describe God's love, or, or deep, maybe? 
or overwhelming or, or eternal. All, all of those words are good and true and right. But I want to throw one more to you today. I think that the Scriptures continually, over and over again, point to another word about the love of God. And that word is surprising. Does God's love seem surprising to you? Does, does God's love for you seem surprising to you? After all, why should it be? Why should it be that this morally perfect God who can't have any imperfection in his presence, this God who is, who is good, who, who brought us from the dust, who watched us rebel against him, who watches us time and time again pick other things over him, who watches us kind of go into, into disobedience and sometimes even grievous sin, why should this God want anything to do with us? Friends, the love of God, if it is anything, is surprising. It is surprising because it is undeserved. We not only are undeserving, we are ill-deserving. It's not just that we don't deserve anything from God. It's that we do deserve stuff from Him. We deserve bad stuff from Him. We deserve judgment. We deserve punishment. And instead, instead of getting that, God has loved sinners so much that when we deserved bad, He gave us good. He loved us so much He was not only willing to give us good, but to become the good that we needed to himself, take on flesh, enter this world, go through all those things that the Dorothy Sayers quote that I shared said, was willing to endure the, the restrictions and the discomfort of life, to do it perfectly when we failed, and then to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the love that God has for sinners like you and like me. It is a surprising kind of love. Uh, Peggy Noonan was a speechwriter in the Reagan White House in the 1980s for a short time at the front end of the, of the administration. She left that post and did some other writing. She wrote on current events. She wrote on different things. She eventually wrote a biography of Reagan called When Character Was King. Because of Ronald Reagan's close association with Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, across the ocean because they were in, in office at the same time and they had a close association. Peggy Noonan was all the time writing about things that were going on with America and with, with Great Britain. And it came as a surprise to Peggy Noonan in 2013 when she received an invitation to Margaret Thatcher's funeral. Now, when I say a funeral, I don't just mean a regular funeral. This was a 36 million pound, which is something almost like four million dollar funeral. Three or three and a half million dollars of that was just for security. The queen herself was invited. And the thing about funerals like this that happen in St. Paul's Cathedral in London is you are seated in the sanctuary 
according to how important you are. So many family members, many people who were, you know, many dignitaries were seated down on the front couple of rows. When Peggy Noonan got there, she expected to be seated in the back. But the usher just kept walking her forward, walking her forward, walking her forward. And they seated her on something like the fourth or the fifth row. She's like, There's, there must be some mistake. But they don't make mistakes at $4 million funerals, do they? And she sat there and she's just looking around at the beautiful architecture and all the people who are present, some of whom are right in the row in front of her, these people that she's only seen on TV or perhaps, things like that. And then much to her surprise, someone a couple of rows in front of her turns around and looks at her and kind of breaks protocol, right? And mouths these words to Peggy Noonan. She mouths the words, she loved you. Unbeknownst to Peggy Noonan, she had an admirer in Margaret Thatcher, far away across the ocean. Margaret Thatcher loved her writing so much that she made arrangements that when she died, Peggy Noonan could come and be in her funeral and be at a privileged seat. It was a surprising love to her. Friends, God loves us with a surprising love as well. But he does not love us because he saw us from a distance and recognized our talent. He, he wasn't looking at us from afar and thought, man, I want that guy or that girl on my team. They would be a good addition to my kingdom. He saw us and saw everything that was inside of us, everything that was dark and black and wicked. And he loved us anyway. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Friends, this is a surprising kind of love because it is a love that is undeserved. What does this have to do with Israel? What does this have to do at all with Israel and ransoming captive Israel? What does that even mean? Well, in the Old Testament, we see a book of shadows. The Old Testament is, is just a book of shadows that set us up to see Christ in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we see the people of Israel. And what are they? They are a disobedient and wayward people. They are a people who continue to demonstrate to God how unlovable they are. They continue to show God over and over again how unfaithful they are, how undeserving they are, and yes, indeed, how ill-deserving they are. There's this cycle that goes over and over in the Old Testament. They fall into sin. They run from God. God disciplines them in His love. They wake up to what's going on. They return to God, and then the relationship is restored. Here's the trick. Israel is just a picture of us. Israel is a picture of how wayward and fickle and undeserving we are. And they show us how much God loves sinners anyway. For all who would turn away from their life and turn to Him, there is acceptance and love and forgiveness. They had a kind of slavery we see in our first point. There's slavery old and new. What kind of slavery 
was Israel in? They were in a kind of slavery. Remember, they were enslaved to the people of Egypt in the book of Exodus. You know what the book of Exodus is? The book of Exodus, the word Exodus just means a big going out. You might have heard someone say something like it in a a movie theater. You know, if, if, if one time when I was in high school, I was in a movie theater and there was a big thunderstorm going on outside and the power went out all over town. And so what did the people do? Well, we don't know how soon the movie's going to get back on. Some people lingered, and then finally everybody just got up and left. There was a mass exodus. There was a mass going out of people. And that is what the people of Israel needed. They were enslaved. They had a taskmaster. They had a slave master, Pharaoh. And he was very harsh. He kept them under his thumb. He made them do what he wanted them to do. He told them to go where he wanted them to go. He made them uh, make bricks without straw. He made their work very difficult for them. But do you see the picture here? The people of Israel, what are they? They are broken lost, leaderless in many ways, serving under bondage, under a a harsh slave master. Friends, this is a picture of us before Christ. Outside of Christ, we are broken. We are lost. We are leaderless. We have a slave master and he he leads us around like like he's got a, a collar and a leash on us and he makes us do what he wants us to do and we are not free. But there is, a, there is a freedom that comes in the exodus that Jesus brings. Just like God let the people of Israel cross over into the promised land, we are now enslaved to our sin and Jesus intends to get us out of our predicament. It says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. If you're in Romans 8, you can look in verse 20 and, and following. It says this, For the creation was subjected to futility. It just means it was put to uselessness. The creation was done done, done away with in a sense. Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and, and obtain or get the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we eagerly wait the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What the Bible is saying here is that sin is such a disease and it has infected so much of life. It has broken and twisted everything, all of our relationships and our way of thinking. We don't always think the way that the Bible thinks. We don't always want what God wants. We don't always relate to other people the way that God would want us to relate to other people. Sin is a curse and that curse has infected every part of our life. How has it changed us? Romans chapter 3 says... What has sin done? How far has its, has its infection spread in us? It says this in Romans 3, 9. What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, the kind of slavery that we were put in because of sin was a total slavery. As a matter of fact, the slavery that Israel was in is only a small shadow of the slavery that we are in because of sin. Our hearts had been attracted away from Christ and toward other things. We wanted them. I have a son, and he's only almost four years old, and he says some of the most theologically profound things I've ever heard. He hit his brother the other day in the head. And I asked him, so if you see our kids coming to nursery and they got bruises all over their face, it's not mom and dad neglecting them, it's, it's them being brothers. And I said, Coram, why? Why did you hit your brother in the head? And he said, because I wanted to. And I said, correct. Like, that's James. That's the book of James. Where does sin come from? It comes from our hearts. Our problems are not outside of us as much as we like to, you know, say that our problems are our environment or our problems are other people or our problems are our, our influences or how our parents raise us or whatever. Our problems, our ultimate problems are right here. They come out of the heart. Sin comes from our desires. Why do we sin? Because we want to. Because we have hearts that are twisted and that come out of the womb turned away from God. And we need a heart surgery to occur if we are ever to be brought back. This is the kind of slavery that we are in. But there's good news. There's good news for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And there's good news for us. God promised that consolation would come through a king. Now, we don't use that term a lot, consolation, do we? The only time that I have ever really used that in, in common language is when we were having all kinds of you know, health problems with our second son, and I remember calling the doctor. He was a believer there in Greenville, South Carolina. Went to a very like-minded church. God was very kind to us and giving us this doctor, and he was only a few weeks away from retirement. And I'm like, you got to fix my son before you retire. You can't pass me off to whoever just came out of med school, right? you gotta, you got to take care of the problem. And I called him called his nurse, and, and ju in just about five minutes, he called me back, and, and, and we said, we're afraid that that little complication that you told us about could happen, has happened. Our son is just inconsolable, or unconsolable, I don't know which one it is, but he's not consolable. We can't put him at peace. He's crying nonstop, we're afraid that the problem continues. Israel needed to be consoled. They needed consolation. They needed peace. The peace that would come only through a king. God promised that this peace would come. Why did they need to be consoled? Think about what they had been through. They lost their city, Jerusalem. They lost their temple, or they were about to again. They had lost the place where God's presence could be met. They had no hope. 
They had lost their king. They had been scattered. They were enslaved by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. They were just passed off as the, the you know, I don't know, the garden variety slaves. Whoever was in power got a hold of them. God had been silent for 400 years from the close of Malachi to the opening of Matthew. No words from God. This was a people who needed consolation. Do you need consolation too? One of the most elusive things in our life right now is peace. Anxiety runs rampant. Worry, cares. We are a people who need consolation. But we don't just need for our hearts to be at rest in some kind of I'm happy kind of way. We need consolation on the deepest level. We need God to set us right again. And God promised in Genesis 3.15 that he would. The Lord said to the serpent, right after sin comes into the world, Adam and Eve disobey, God says this, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above the beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go and, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, that just means strife or conflict between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring shall bruise your head and you, snake, serpent, shall bruise his heel. He tells the serpent that yes, you're going to bruise the heel of somebody who's going to come from this woman, but he's going to bruise your head. Now, which one is more serious? A bruise to the heel is painful, right? But a bruise to the head is often fatal. This is what God says is going to happen. There's going to be one who's going to come from this woman years and years later, and she is going to crush you, even though you're going to bruise him. This is Christ. He came to set us free. Yes, he was bruised, but he was not ultimately killed, was he? The one who was killed on the cross was not Jesus. The one who was killed on the cross ultimately was sin. That's the one that died on Calvary. Jesus died to be sure, but not fully and finally. He rose again. Instead of wanting God's king, they need consolation. God told them, I will send you a king. I will send you a king who will console you, who will fix your problems. Instead of waiting for God's king, what did they do? They clamored for their own kind of king. We're going through on Sunday nights through 1 Samuel how the people wanted a king. They wanted Saul. They said, Lord, give us a king so that we can be like all the other nations. The problem is the Israelites were not supposed to be like all the other nations. They were supposed to be different. But they wanted to be like all the other nations. They said, give us a strong man. Give us a king who's going to fight for us and win our battles. We, we want a king like everybody else has. And who did they get? They got Saul. A man who was handsome. He was the one that maybe they would have picked. But he was not the one that God said would come. God gave the people what they wanted. But he didn't give them what they needed. But friends, in Christ, in Christ, God gave us the one, not the one that we wanted, but the one that we needed. 
He was the one who could do the work. And it was prophesied in Isaiah. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government there shall be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Even though the people wanted the wrong kind of king, God was still kind to them in giving them the kind of king that they needed. As I said a couple Sunday nights ago, in the words of certain classic rock singers, you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find you get what you need. And God has given us what we needed in Christ. A king who will bring consolation. Who will bring an end to our slavery. And who will bring a message that can change our community, our church, our families. It says this in Luke chapter 2. You can turn there if you'd like. Or you can just listen along to this. And when the time came for their purification, this is talking about Jesus and his parents, Mary and, and Joseph, according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And they came to offer a sacrifice to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This is interesting, right? His parents are bringing turtle doves or pigeons. This demonstrates how poor they are. Because in the Old Testament law, this is what you bring when you can't afford a lamb. You bring a pair of turtle doves. His parents were poor. This is the offering that they're bringing. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Here's a man who's waiting for the king. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. In other words, now I can die in peace because I've seen the king that you have provided to bring us peace, to console your people. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for, the, and for glory to your people Israel. Friends, Simeon here tells us what we need to know. Jesus Christ is the true and better king. We didn't need Saul. We didn't even need David. We needed a king who would come not mounted on a horse, but mounted on a donkey to die for us, to pay for our sins upon the cross, to shed his blood, his perfect blood, after living a life of 33 years that was perfect, after we live lives of imperfection. And what his work does is brings us comfort in the gospel. Christ is the king. Christ is the king that we need. And it says in Hebrews, because of this, he is able to save to the uttermost 
those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, he always prays for us. He always does what is necessary to go in between us and God. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, the Bible says, like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He doesn't have to do this. Why? Since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. Folks, we may be tempted like Israel to look for help, peace, consolation in other places. But it can only be found in Christ. If it can't be found in Saul, if it can't be found in David, if it can't be found in all the methods that we would choose, it has to be found only in what God provides. And He has provided it in Jesus Christ. The love of God is surprising, friends. And let me challenge you. If you think that God owes you love, your worship will be small and dry and lifeless. If you think that you're a good person and God owes you love. But if you see that you are far from Him, that you wandered far from Him just like the Israelites did, and yet he loves you anyway, that, that is a surprising kind of love. That is a love that will make your worship full. That is the kind of of love that will make you want to sing for joy over the gospel. That is the kind of love that will make you want to pray and give and go and get up on Sunday morning to come to church. That gratitude over what God has done to the undeserving and to the ill-deserving. I'll read this to you. It was on the opposite page of what we sang this morning. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation. Hope of all the world Thou art, in other words, you're the hope of all the world. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Friends, is your heart longing for the gospel? Believer, have you found yourself at different times this year wandering from him? Advent and Christmas is a time to return to Christ. Perhaps there's one here who has never come to him in the first place. He has come to be your king. He has come to give you consolation. And the only thing that remains is to ask yourself the question, what are you going to do with this king? I would invite you to come forward today to talk to me if there's anything at all that you need to settle with Christ today. Let's pray.
God, thank you for showing us in both testaments that you are a God who is loving and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Your Bible says that that it's the kindness of God that intends to lead us to repentance. It's your kindness, it's your love for us that, that is supposed to beckon us and draw us out. And I pray that you would draw someone out today. I pray that they would slip out of their seat and come down forward and talk to me and say, I have today believed I have believed the gospel for the first time or, or there's someone who's like, I, I've been wandering. I'm a believer as far as I know, I, I, but I've been wandering. I've been far from the Lord and today I, I, I see God's beckoning and his love and I just want to return to him in repentance. Lord, I pray that you would do that work. I pray that you would set our gaze in this Advent season not on possessions, not on the commercialism, not on anything else, but the fact that we have a God who sent his son to be our king to give us peace. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.